Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. Thank you guys so much for coming out in the snow. What a day it's been. Uh, I'm Jan Diedrichsen. I am the GM of Sundance TV and Sundance Now, and we are very happy to have you here today for our Sundance Now documentary filmmakers panel. I uh, just want to quickly tell you a little bit about Sundance Now because we're really proud of it. It's a streaming service. We have terrific documentaries. We have great movies, most, the most available from the Sundance Film Festival. And we have terrific series, so please check it out. There are brand ambassadors all around. So I want to introduce our, our panel and really our moderator, Tom Powers. Tom is the host of Pure Nonfiction. He is the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival. And he is also a curator for Sundance Now. And we, uh, we are so proud to have him here today. And he'll introduce our panel for us, Tom Powers. Thank you uh, very much. I'm going to ask the panelists to come on out and sit down, and then um, we can introduce them uh, once we're, uh, we're all seated here. But the idea of this panel today is talking about uh, emotional moments in documentary uh, film. Uh, the four uh, filmmakers today all have uh, films at, uh, at the, uh, this year's festival. Uh, they are, come on out. Uh, Lucy, you go there. John, you go there. Pete, you're here. Jen, you're next to me. Um, so uh, they are all master practitioners uh, in, um, in my eyes of, of documentary filmmaking and, you know, and have really, um, really know how to bring it uh, with, with, uh, with emotions, which I think is you know, what so many of us kind of return to documentaries uh, for again and again. So the way I'm going to uh, structure this is we're going to go through filmmaker... Uh, by filmmaker, they're going to talk a little bit about their film. We're going to show a little clip from their film, and uh, and then once we get through the four of them, we'll kind of have a uh, more open general discussion between us uh, about what it means to really go deep uh, emotionally with uh, with documentary films. So I'm going to start with Lucy Walker, the longest uh, veteran on this panel of uh, Sundance. She's had nine films uh, at the Sundance Film Festival. <laughs> Um, they uh, include what's the name of your first film that about Devil's Playground 2002. Devil's Playground 2002 was her first film about uh, Amish teenagers uh, taking a year out in, uh, into the into the world. Uh, uh, you would know her film Wasteland that was nominated for an Academy Award and uh, and so many other great films. I, I in my job at the Toronto Film Festival, I showed uh, her terrific film Blind Sight, um, which I believe is on Sundance Now uh, platform. Um, and uh, about uh, uh, taking an expedition of, um, of uh, blind kids up Mount Everest. Uh, so uh, quite extraordinary stuff. This year, uh, Lucy's film uh, was the untitled uh, Buena Vista uh, Social Club uh, documentary. Uh, the uh, distributor uh, decided not to premiere it at, at Sundance. It was all uh, set to go, and then it uh, didn't work out. But you are going to be uh, treated to uh, a little clip from it. Uh, Lucy, can you just kind of set up what the project is? Well, you know, many of us know Vim Vendor's uh, Buena Vista Social Club uh, uh, documentary uh, from many years ago. Uh, what is this project? Sure. Actually, um, it's just about to be re-released, Vim Vendor's 1998 Buena Vista Social Club documentary. And I found that not as many people as I thought have seen it. Who's seen that wonderful film? A few. Oh, that's a great crowd here. 
Um, but it was a big documentary for me. It was one of the first films that was shot on mini DV and blown up to 35. And I saw it um, uh, uh, in when I was in film school in New York on a big screen. And at the time, I thought it looked completely fantastic um, in terms of the quality of the shot on digital. And um, it was my first glimpse of Cuba and these incredible musicians. And I fell in love. Uh, and of course, I'm a huge Vim fan. And then the opportunity came up a couple of years ago to make something of a follow-up. And um, I didn't want to do kind of, I think it was originally maybe talked about as more of a concert film or a tour film. And that was less interesting to me than really to understand the lives of these musicians and how the history of Cuba had affected them. And to um, dig deeper, the first film was wonderful, but um, a kind of an introductory glimpse. And I really wanted to dig deeper and understand Cuba in this moment as it was changing. And um, I also managed to bring back Vim, um, who is a hero of mine, and reach out to him and ask him to be an executive producer on the project. And um, that was a couple of years ago, and we worked on it, and we almost premiered it this weekend. And you're going to see a little bit of it, which is not necessarily a very emotional uh, clip from it, but um, I'm really excited to share it because it's um, as much as you'll see of the film at this uh, festival, uh, 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 it turns out. And... Um, um, but I'm really, really Is there anything, to uh, before we watch the clip, anything you want to say to set it up? I think it's self-explanatory. And if it's not, I'm just going to have to explain it. Then afterwards. you'll explain it when it's done. Okay, so if we can roll that clip from Untitled Buena Vista Social Club. Y le dijeron, bueno, Buenavista Social Club está por allá. Se fue para allá. Sí, que qué loco salió eso en un documental. Sí. Y por fin nunca dio aquí en Buenavista Social Club. Nunca dio con el pie con bola. Y este es el lugar. Este es el lugar. This is the real thing. This is the real Buenavista Social Club. This is the place where it used to be this society for black people, people for workers, black workers. And uh, it's a famous place. But it used to be a very famous place in the past as well. Not only that, right now after the, these uh, sessions and the album and everything, blah, blah, blah. It used to be really uh, an important place. El cuartico, que era el guardarropía. Sí. O sea, venían... La gente con sus levas. Con sus levas, con sus sombreros. Entonces llegaban, dejaban la leva, llegaban el sombrero y se ponían a bailar. All of this area was the one of the club. This was a society for black people. They used to perform here and they used to dance here as well. And right now it, it is a gym and very modern, by the way. It was a, a huge uh, hole. This is the original floor. And on this floor, the people used to dance and they enjoy life. Not very emotional. I, I think the blue bra is my favorite bit of that clip, but um, that's not that emotional. Uh, but uh, to talk to us in, you know, in getting into the lives of, uh, of these people, you know, some of whom had been on camera before and some people you're encountering uh, probably haven't as much. Um, uh, what, was, what was it like, what was your task in drawing them out? Actually, the challenge with this film um, was that uh, the big stars have been huge music stars their whole lives. And it's the opposite problem where you have people that are so kind of media pro and media tired that they don't want to give you any time and they don't want to do another interview and they kind of have their lines. You know, actually, I feel like the, the big challenge for documentary filmmakers is often I've had things where you get, you get to interview with President, you know, Carter or Gorbachev or something like that. And you get these amazing coups, which seem really, really exciting. But the trouble is with kind of professional interviewees, they've got their professional lines. 
and the hell are they going to give you something kind of spontaneous and risque uh, and emotional or let themselves go because, um, you know, it's very important that they stick to their lines and stuff, right? So actually it's really difficult for a filmmaker to kind of find the exposed flesh. And a little bit with that film here, um, Wanda Marcos, um, uh, the um, main um, dude there, is kind of interesting because he was barely in the last film, but really the whole project was him. Um, in, in great part, his vision and his dream. And in the first film, we didn't really focus so much on the Cubans as much as Y and Rakim Kuder, who were amazing. But the contribution of, of, of the Cubans is really what's highlight, highlighted in our film. And, and yet, and most of them are pretty big stars, so it was more about trying to persuade them to tell us something new and to talk about um, the things that they hadn't really covered and to also talk about really difficult stuff, um, which I think is where it gets really interesting, right? It's where you want to engage as human beings with the exposed nerves and the raw and the emotional. And um, I always have to challenge myself as a filmmaker not to be too polite and accepting of what um, people are kind of shyly going to give you. And you have to really kind of overcome your polite sort of British um, deference and ask the most, you know, frighteningly um, uh, kind of... Um, it's called being American. It is, but it's also called, like, I mean, you know, I remember one time interviewing for Crash or somebody, this wonderful um, athlete whose wife had been killed, uh, you know, uh, amazing Sarah Burke, who was killed here in Park City, an amazing woman. Um, tragically, and he just—I remember interviewing him, and he—and he was in the—he's ho- telling me about being in the ho- hospital room, and he said, uh, and then the doctor walked in, and I didn't have to ask—I didn't have to even ask him; I could just tell what he was about to say, and then you have to look at him and you have to think, okay, here you go, Lucy. You had to say, <clears throat> so what did he say? <laughs> you know, and you have to really like, you know, um, sort of tense your gut and think like I have to actually ask people about you know the the most difficult moments or the most difficult emotions that they have and um, I'm not a trained therapist and in fact it probably isn't what trained therapists is that it goes against some pretty good therapist training as well to just wade on right in there and 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 yet um, and yet it it is beautiful because actually I find that people really want to share their stories. I mean, most people, some people really don't, and that's a different challenge. And then some professional people really are kind of bored about the whole thing, and you have to find ways to, to find that new, new kind of approach that is interesting and, and, and does allow them to tell uh, the story in a fresh and interesting way that will be much more fresh and interesting to the audience. Thank you. Um, now I'm going to move to uh, Jonathan Olszewski, he is the director of Quest that is making his first film, making its world premiere uh, here at the Sundance Film Festival. Has anyone seen Quest at uh, one of the screens so far? Okay, so it's very new to, uh, to most of you. Uh, Jonathan has been working on this film for 10 years following a family uh, in Philadelphia. I run a little uh, program called the Garrett Scott Development Grant where we give uh, a little support to first-time filmmakers, and uh, this project had really struck us. Uh, two years ago, and I'm so happy to see it uh, here. So, Jonathan, can you tell us a little bit more about Quest and the Rainey family who's at the center of it? Yeah. Well, it's really an honor to be here, and it's, uh, an, it's been an honor to kind of share the Rainey family uh, through the film uh, Quest. And, uh, yeah, basically I've shot it over uh, uh, 10 years. Um, and, you know, it, the film centers around sort of the mom, the dad, and their uh, youngest daughter, PJ, who was uh, six years old when uh, we first met. Um, the project started off as a photography project, um, and then about a year and a half uh, into that, I realized that cinema was a much better medium for t- conveying the story and reflecting their complexity. Um, but I'd never made a documentary before, so um, you know, we just, but the family and, and I, we, we trusted each other, and we just you know, kind of got going in 2007. Um, and so PJ, uh, you know, she's the family, we should say, living in one of the tougher neighborhoods of Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. North Philadelphia is a, a tougher neighborhood. And, and, and part of my, like, reason for wanting to kind of 
tell the story of this family is because the stories that come out of North Philly, especially on like the local news, is like the negative stuff, and um, the community becomes defined by those sort of negative, scary, depressing stories. And that is not my experience of you know hanging out with people in that community. And so, really, wanted to make a quiet portrait of a family to sort of undermine those sort of. Uh, sensationalized, you know, uh, negative stereotype reinforcing depictions. Um, and so, yeah, PJ was just six years old when we first started, um, and I really watched her grow up and, um, you know, sort of it, it set up the clip or whatever. Um, I guess it was, she was 13, so it was six years, I think, into filming. Uh, there was this crazy crisis, tragedy, where uh, she was injured by a stray bullet. Um, and so really the, it really kind of that hit her eye and yeah, so she, she was hit in the, in the left eye by a, by a stray bullet. And, um, actually at the time I thought we were done filming. I'd already been filming for so long. So I was editing in the family. Uh, actually I got in touch, like, what can I do? How can I support you guys? And they were like, you've been with us for so long. Can you come back and help us tell the story? Because we want PJ to know what she's been through and, and to honor that, um, uh, sort of the struggle that she she faced and and um so so yeah. in this clip it's shortly after <clears throat> this shooting uh took place and it just yeah. set it up for us yeah so um so this is basically the, the the moment she she comes home from the hospital after kind of uh being injured by this stray bullet how many days after she she was probably in the hospital for not super long maybe five or six days yeah so this is a, less than a week after the, the shooting took place. Yes. All right, so let's roll that clip from Quest. Come on, Pam. I've been praying for you, baby. I'm on my mind since, since the thing happened. let you know that you're still beautiful and God loves you. It was God's way of something happening to God be the glory. And know that at the end of the day, that you are beautiful no matter what. No matter what. You really she's gorgeous. She knows she's good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, look a pretty girl. She wants to go in the house. Okay, I'm gonna be tired. Smile. You're still pretty. Look how pretty she is. Wow, pretty girl, smile. Let me see that smile. What's the matter, baby? You all right? Everybody get on. You want some quiet time? Huh? You know what I'm saying? You want, you want, you want everybody to stay out your face? Everybody keep acting like a big dude. Big You're dude. still pretty. I know, oh my God. I know I'm not ugly. I know. I'm not worried about my eyes. Y'all just make me think about my eye more. You're yeah. still pretty. You're not ugly. Don't worry. Smile. You talking about that lady? Yeah. Yeah, she was. She crazy. <laughs> I mean, everything she says, she meant well, but she don't really like being reminded of a lot of some sure, certain things. Some I things know. it's just not even you don't feel like talking about them. Mm. That's not even the most emotional scene in the movie, by the way. <laughs> um, so, uh, Jonathan, talk to us about this scene. And, uh, you know, so you'd had a relationship with this family for six years, um, which clearly gives you the intimacy that you have in, uh, in that room. Um, you know, but, you know, this moment was really, I think, anyways, ratcheting up anything you'd been through with that family before then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even being in the hospital with her and with the family, 
um, we had gone through that and that emotional experience and was like kind of on, on some level sort of expecting this like celebration. She's, she survived, she doesn't have brain damage and we're just like so happy. But then that moment on the stoop, I think for me, like really realized that, yeah, she survived and she's, you know, still, still, she's still PJ, but she has to deal with this. And, and you know, people want to help and support, but they're doing this awkward way that's making her feel insecure um, and, and vulnerable. And, but also you see this moment where, where you see her strength, you know, and, and the support of her, 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 her father and mother um, in that. And so in that way, it's like really beautiful. But in, in that moment, I was just so aware of like, well, what am I doing here with the camera too? Am I adding to her sort of stress, um, you know, her insecurity? Um, I, and, and I film very close, so I'm, I'm there. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm right up, you know, um, in it. And so, yeah, so I, I captured that moment and, and, you know, sort of the, the moment with, you know, after she, you know, says, you know, she's crazy. You know, she's just sitting in that chair with her, her head in her hands. And I just was like, you know, I put the camera down. I was like, PJ, like, do you need, do you need a break from me too? Do I need to, like, give you space um, as well? And, you know, I, I will never forget. But she's like, no, John, it's cool. Like, you're, I know you. And it's different. And just like, it just reinforces, like, her parents invited me into the hospital room, but that even PJ in that moment sort of was like, it's okay, I trust you. Um, and, you know, we premiered the film on Saturday, and so here's this other level that I'm sort of dealing with now where it's like, here's me in the room in real time, like, wh how am I impacting PJ? And now we're confronting, well, how is this story going out to the world? How is that going to impact her and the family? And um, I'm really hopeful that people will, you know, kind of receive that, the love and, and the love that I've put into the film, like, and reflect that back to the family, but I'm also, you know, a little, our world is a rough, a rough world, and, and people say nasty stuff, especially online, and so am I, am I making PJ, like, that vulnerable moment, putting that out into the world, and, and how is the world going to receive that? So I'm going with it, skepticism, but also hope, and just trusting our viewers to, you know, kind of take it and hopefully embrace the family. So that's hard. Uh, great topic. And when we get through all these films, I want to come back to that, uh, you know, as a filmmaker dealing with the people who are in your films in the long term. Um, our next uh, guest is uh, Peter uh, Nix. Um, his previous film was called The Waiting Room, uh, which made it to the Oscar uh, shortlist a few years ago. It was a very intimate look inside an Oakland uh, hospital, uh, quite extraordinary film. And uh, his new film is inside the Oakland Police Department, um, uh, really embedded uh, both with the top leaders and officers um, on the ground uh, over what nearly a two-year period. Am I right, Peter? Uh, and uh, really an extraordinary look inside uh, that force. So um, I, I guess I've kind of done the job of, uh, of setting up that I would normally have you do. But um, can you t uh, talk about you know, what the tensions were during this particular time that you were um, making a film. Has anyone seen The Force, by the way? It's had a couple screens. Okay, well, one Force viewer. Yeah, so thank you so much, Tom, for having me here, and thanks to Sundance for this remarkable opportunity to bring this film out into the world. It's, um, it's been a long journey with the, with the project. Um, you know, we began before Black Lives Matter was even a hashtag, and with the intent to try to understand the relationship that this public institution had with the community. It was part of a series of films that we were trying to, to, to produce to explore that question at a, at a moment when a lot of our public institutions were under great strain and, or, or criticism to really understand who, what, what challenges that they were facing in the community and who were the men and women who ran these institutions. Um, the ground shifted uh, underneath us profoundly you know, after Ferguson. And as we basically went, went, when we began filming for the the, the verdict had just come out, um, the Darren. And you'd kind of set up this project before Ferguson. It was all yeah, yeah prior to. Um, I mean, there was a conversation happening. There was the, uh, had been the Oscar Grant shooting and Trayvon Martin, and there was there was a there was a electricity in the air about this relationship, um, really inflamed by a, a lot of. Um, you know, how the narrative was um, unfolding on social media in our sort of, th that ecosystem and how we shared information and expressed our emotions about how we felt about this. Oftentimes, with limited context. And so what we wanted to do with the film, 
even before Ferguson, was try to understand these men and women and the challenges they, they faced in this community. We knew it would be difficult, um, particularly with the, with the sensitivities about representation in our communities, um, because we knew we'd be seeing somewhat of a dark view of, of this community because we were looking at it through the police officer's eyes, and that, that's actually part of the story. And so, um, but this is part and parcel of my, my try, trying to get emotion into nonfiction. It has a lot to do with setting up the environments in which you operate. And when you, when you film people who are in environments that, uh, where there's inherent conflict or where there's the potential for you know, having to make a moral choice, you tend, to, you tend to draw out emotion from characters and situations. And crisis often reveals, the moral choices and the decisions that people make often reveal character. And so it takes time, and so we had to spend many, many hours riding along. So this clip, right along with these officers to try to understand what they were seeing and how, how they were making decisions. And so this clip, all I'll say is um, uh, it, uh, this was one of the officers that we decided to feature somewhat in the, in the film, and this was just an average day um, with him, and, and this was what unfolded. So let's roll that clip. I think it's labeled for PBS. Okay, and what was your, um, okay. I know you're all right. Okay. That nigga in that black Benz hit you? Hold on, hold on. No! Hey. Hey. Hey, you better relax right now. Relax. Man, I'm relax. not doing, I'm not doing okay, why you got to approach him like that? Relax. For real. Okay? Hey, Ty, for one, can we get one more unit over here, please? The uh, victim's brother's on scene and he's not cooperative. Nigga, I don't give a fuck about you, nigga. Matter of fact, hey, 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 hey. Two type one. He just took off running westbound. Any description? Male, black, in pajama pants, uh, no shirt, bald. Extremely confrontational. Where was she at? Was she in the crosswalk? No, she was over here on the street. I had already turned back. Is he coming back? Yeah, he's coming back. Where is he? And you look on this, there's going to be about 15 people out here. One's going to be a male black 20s with a white shirt, blue jeans. Hey, this is the guy that's giving us problems that's walking up right now. Hey, are you with somebody here? Not a yeah, he's the one that, yeah, he's going to give us problems. There's a large group of them. A lot of them are our white jeans. We still land where we can get a better script. There's a bunch of them out there. Yeah, sorry, 2-Tap-4-1. Can you just have our unit step it up to code 3, please? Hey, your sister's going to the hospital. Okay? Hey, back up. Back up. You ain't sending nobody to the hospital. Okay? What did we say? What did we say? Okay, you're not sending nobody to the hospital. Okay? I ain't did shit. Okay. I got my hands up. I can't breathe. Okay, what do you want from us? I want shit from you. Okay, you're not gonna go and attack nobody, yeah, okay? Right. So what's your plan? Ain't nothing my plan. Okay, then walk away. That, uh... I've never watched the film this close up. That was like a different experience for me. I don't know how I feel about that. Well, uh... Was that, were you shooting that scene? Yeah, I, I, I shoot my own, I, I'm the DP of my films, and um, it's just I've always shot my own films, because that's what we do in documentary, because we can't afford to hire DPs sometimes. But um, yes, I, I shot it. And uh, so, how long into the project were you before that scene took place, and how well did you know, were you bonded with the officers in that situation? This was about mid midway through, so it was about a two-year two-year stretch. The first three months or so was nothing but protests. So we began. I mean, there's the research and sort of the trying to get access to the department, which took quite quite a bit of time. 
And we started shooting November 2014, which is when the Ferguson decision came out. And then, um, you know, this had been, we, we had gotten to know him a bit at this point. And um, he was somewhat reluctant, I think. You know, he felt... There's no upside to having a camera. I alone. mean, you know, we don't, we, we, I talked to him. I said, hey, man, you know, like, if you don't want to do this, it's cool. You know, but I think he felt some pressure at the department, asked him... They didn't pick people for us. We asked, we just kind of hung out and asked to, he just kept showing up actually during, during sort of test shooting. He, this guy kept showing up. He was like the puppy with the tail wagon. Like he was just everywhere. He was like a young guy, idealistic. He would do overtime. And so we just, you know, felt he was kind of like the every cop. And, um, but there had been a bit of a trust built in at that point to where he, Plus, it's a crisis situation. So in a crisis, you tend to forget the, that the camera's there. And if you kind of, I don't know if you picked up on it, but it's almost like that guy whose sister had been hit by the car, it's almost like that cop wasn't there. And so here's this cop who's inserted, being, having to sort of manage this, this crisis in this community that he's not from, not understanding that, that sort of history. And they barely see him there, you know? And so we found that to be, you know, uh, very telling ab about that this relationship between police who are asked to, to resolve conflicts in communities that they're not from. All right, now I wanna to go to our last uh, filmmaker, Jennifer Brea. Uh, her first film is here called Unrest. It's a very personal story. Has anyone seen Unrest? Oh, good, okay, a few uh, people. So, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'm just gonna have Jennifer explain what Unrest is. Sure, so again, thanks for having me here on this panel. Um, Unrest is a personal film I started making about three years ago, and it was following um, the sort of life-changing experience of becoming very suddenly sick after a high fever, um, losing you know, fairly quickly my physical capacity to the point that I became bedridden, and then trying to go to doctors and being told that it was all in my head, um, and that I wasn't really sick because they couldn't find out what was wrong with me. Um, I decided to make a film once I recognized, um, once I became diagnosed with ME, which is more commonly called chronic fatigue syndrome, and found the sort of whole world of people online, many of whom were also homebound and bedridden. And so the film follows me and then several of these sort of characters and their families that I connect to from my bed, because during most of production, um, I was largely bedridden. Um, and so we go into sort of their worlds. Um, the clip that we're about to see is actually of uh, my story and my husband's story. And the film focuses a lot on, um, we had just gotten married, um, and you know you sort of expect perhaps that one of you will care for the other kind of at the end of your life, but not at the beginning of your life together. So that's what this is about. And in the clip that we're about to see, um, I have just uh, started taking a new drug that has made me feel a lot better. I've been able to leave my house for um, one of the very first times in a very long time, and I don't, remember exactly where this starts, but the day didn't go quite according to plan. It starts in a pretty rough place. Um, so uh, we can roll the clip uh, from Unrest. I'm sorry, please don't. Oh, God. Ah! Okay, I Stop! I, I can't. I could feel everything in my head swelling pushing out my eyeballs. I would try to speak, and the sounds that would come out of my mouth would be gibberish. I can't understand, love.
Maybe I'm so sorry. So uh, we've seen some pretty tough moments uh, in these films. I want to express that these films are also full of tremendous uh, beauty and uh, resilience and um, and humor and uh, and I hope you get to see all of them. Um, uh, Jennifer, I mean, th this film, you know, feels anyways that it's completely unvarnished. You are as you and your husband Omar and other people in here are as uh, raw and, um, and transparent as, uh, as possible. Um, can you talk about the, I mean, you must have made a decision that you were going to do that, but then what was it like following through on that decision? Um, well, you know, it's, I think because this is a personal film and um, there was, during the process of making this, sort of very little separation between the film and my life um, because it was such a, an important part of my life to sort of, try to express what was happening and tell my story. And, and I, think, I think, you know, I, I, had a, I have a friend who's a writer who gave me a really good piece of advice long before um, I, I started making this film, which is that, you know, um, often, like, writing and editing are two totally different processes. And so one of the worst things a writer can do is to edit themselves as they're writing. Um, and so I just, you know, fortunately, as the director who had Final Cut, and, and I, 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 you know, I wasn't sure how much I could trust the director <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, but uh, um, I, I knew that I, I could always choose later if something was really too hard to share, um, and that also how I might feel about it in the moments may not be how I would feel about it later. And so I just it was really important for me to sort of capture everything as it was unfolding as honestly as possible, and then I would decide what the film needed and what the story needed. Um, and, I, and I think you know what you saw were these sort of two different types of footage the sort of the cell films footage where it was just me and my husband. And because we shot so much of that, I really learned what happens like the instant you put a third person in the room and no matter how close they are to you or how used to you to them you are, it just changes um, the moment. And so as lo-fi as those moments were on the iPhone, I think that they were really special because it really was just how my husband and I are when we're alone together. Um, and then we had um, our DP, um, Christian, who was shooting that scene on the porch, and we'd already had conversations in advance because I'd had other people shoot with me who really just kind of had a hard time handling it, um, would not know what to do, like, because I would sometimes unexpectedly collapse or something would happen that would feel quite dramatic. And then as a human, you, you're like, do I... Do I start the camera? Do I cut the camera? Do I try to help? Do I get Omar? Like, what do I do? And in those situations, like, not only am I the subject, but oftentimes I can't speak, so I can't even communicate, yes, please keep rolling. Um, and so I had a lot of conversations with Christian, which were about, you know, in those moments, there's nothing you can truly do to help, to help me. And the only thing that can help is the presence of the camera. And the harder it is, the closer you need to get, because it's only in documenting us that the camera has the 
potential to transform this moment into something that has meaning, so that it's not just kind of meaningless pain. And I think in answer to your question, really all of the subjects in the film felt that way. They all pushed themselves beyond what they could really give to be able to participate in the film, because sometimes even the presence of a crew in someone's room was too much to handle, but I think people were just so committed to telling their stories, um, and, and, that, and they knew that, that the camera had that power to sort of give, give meaning to what they were going through. I mean, something I'll say that's extraordinary about this film that you don't get from this clip is that Jennifer you know, really does reach out to many other people around the world, so this condition that I think sometimes is you know, very badly misunderstood and sometimes only seen in isolation, um, in this film you, you see a, a collective worldwide community of, of people who are trying to find answers uh, to this. Um, so I want to um, go back to this question of uh, you know, not only capturing those emotional moments at the time, but presenting those emotional moments um, in a film. And uh, you know, uh, Lucy and Peter, you have um, longer experiences uh, as filmmakers than, than Jonathan or Jennifer, and, and maybe you could draw on you know, some examples of, uh, of your past work. But, you know, I, I would love to hear either from The Waiting Room or, uh, Lucy, from your experiences on Crash Reel or, um, or any other film, um, you know, uh, how, you, how you dealt with the situation that Jonathan is facing uh, right now of, of, you know, releasing a film out into the world that could uh, change the subject's life. Oh, yeah. It's so funny. I think I've chosen the least emotional clip of any of my films. <laughs> Oops, I think I just, sorry, probably didn't read the memo on which clip to choose very well there. Sorry about that. But um, I... It's good to build. <laughs> yeah, that's actually the op one of the opening scenes of our movie. Um, and so it was opening. And um, actually, Jen said something really that, that really um, reminded me of one of my uh, tricks that I always use um, that I've evolved, which is to... Um, to really encourage anyone I'm filming to not um, edit and do exactly what you've described you did so well with yourself, um, which is don't think about the film. I, I really, I said to people, I'm, you, don't, you do not have the power to call cut. We're going to film everything. Um, and afterwards, if you really can't live with something, we can really discuss that. And, 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 and you have to trust that we're always going to work together. And, and, I, and I, there's no end to the responsibility with which I think you have to um, take care of your subjects because it is their life and, and, and so on. Um, but I've, I've never really had a bad experience. And um, the moments where people would be inclined to call cut, if they're thinking about whether to call cut, they're not in the moment, so you don't want that. And then also those moments that you might call cut in advance, they're about to throw up or they're about to have a really frightening scene and they don't know what's going to happen, are the moments afterwards where typically they feel they're glad they rolled there and that was actually the best of them that came out when in that moment. But in the moment before of the anxiety of not knowing, they'll call cut if you give them the opportunity and so you have to cut, close off that opportunity. And, and that's actually worked out really well. So, so it really helps just to have the camera there. And it is um, enormous privilege you know, to be with people in these big life moments and to conduct yourself and, and work with the crew in the most slimline um, possible way and, and so on. That's one. Um, and then, and it, yeah, as you are helping them take the film out, my God, it's such a huge responsibility. And you, you are telling a movie story out of somebody's lie, life. You know, it's just a massive responsibility and and I actually take it really seriously how I help people through that and you're going through it um, right now and um, I'm still friends with so many of my subjects because it's such a big journey to go on and um, and so on so uh, Peter when you were making the waiting room you're in a hospital you know but people are walking into that situation not knowing that they're going to be on film uh, <clears throat> how you know how, how do you navigate that With the waiting room, it was very interesting because um, it was an environment that is actually protected legally. You know, there are HIPAA laws that protect um, patients' privacy. And so we, we had to navigate that um, in a legal sense and figuring out a framework in, in how to film. Um, and so we did things like um, put up things that you don't see in the film, obviously, put up signs describing what's going on. Um, there were two sections of the waiting room, so we had a we had a um, 
bunch of APs and PAs who were just sort of running around communicating as much as possible in a very short period of time what it is that we were trying to do and that if you didn't want to be on film, you could sort of move to this side of the room. Um, and But what what struck us early in filming, and as I also have to say that the film began with this digital storytelling project and also actually began with conversations in that waiting room with me just sitting down and speaking with people in that waiting room. Um, my wife works at the hospital and that was sort of part of the inspiration for me to make the film. And I, I, we, so I spent a couple years in that space before we really began filming. And so I had built up a bit of a cultural competency with, uh, with that community. Um, and so that, but when we began filming, these were people that we met day of, like for the first time ever. And so because there was such a, a urgent conversation going on around access to care, and because this was a community whose voice hadn't really surfaced in that conversation around healthcare, it was very loud, noisy, political kind of conversation. They had a deep desire to share their story, and so we were actually very surprised at the number of people who wanted to be filmed, who wanted to, you know, share their story. So we had done this storytelling project. We were just had a camera in the waiting room, just allowing people, and we put it up on the web in little short bits and. So many people, there were lines like, um, of people who wanted to sit down and, and, and speak. And so by the time we started working on the film, we had, we had had that sort of back, backdrop. And we just introduced ourselves very quickly, explained what we were trying to do. And, and um, you know, that was it. So uh, Jennifer, all these years you've been filming yourself in these really difficult situations with the kind of goal in mind that this is going to help. Uh, when it's a film and it can be out in the world. Now that the film has had a couple screenings uh, at Sundance, how has that experience been connecting this film to an audience? Um, it's been really incredible. Uh, we, um, so we had three screenings so far. Um, at the premiere, um, there was someone who stood up in the audience uh, after during the Q&A and, and started just sobbing and said, you know, I just, I came here, I didn't even know what the film was about, I just got a ticket last minute, and I'm here, and I have been living with this thing for all of these years, and I had no idea what it was, and I'm just shaking now, because I'm not crazy, um, and, and there was just, there was actually, there was two young women who had, like, clearly, like, had, like, one had, an, one, one had an, a, a diagnosed autoimmune disease, and the other one, she thinks she has this, and they were both, like, on antidepressants, and, like, all, like it's just, as, like, that's just, like, the thing we give everybody, um, with the condition that we find vague, and it, and, and so it, that was really tangible, and then, um, we had a, uh, uh, so Sundance does these sort of community outreach screenings, which, um, is in partnership with local organizations, and one of the only, one of the, the only um, specialist clinics in MECFS in, in the world is in Salt Lake City. So um, they invited, um, you know, maybe half the audience was patients and caregivers, and the other half were doctors, nurses, hospital administrators. And it was, uh, I was a little bit worried because I had never shown it to the medical community. Um, and it was, a, it was really emotional because the, the sort of, um, the patients spoke about how powerful it was for the first time to feel seen. And then the doctor said, I was told that, you know, I was coming to see a film about health or medicine, and actually it's a film about love. And then there started this conversation about how love and compassion are, are like a foundation of health and how all we really want is to see each other and to be listened to each other. And it was this amazing thing to have this deeply human and emotional conversation involving patients and doctors as opposed to that sort of like sterile hierarchical like 15 minutes in a space kind of thing. So it, it, it sort of, it's, yeah, it's starting to really, like I think when you can connect with people emotionally, you take them out of the roles that they usually inhabit and those sort of automatic patterns and, and it can really be um, a kind of heart-opening experience. So that was really pretty incredible. In the spirit of keeping it real, um, you're sitting here uh, looking as healthy as, uh, as anyone could imagine, but we should clarify, like, this is by no means a, a closed uh, story for you. Oh, no, um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's Sundance has been a challenge. I, um, I'm having a hard time sitting in this chair because I can't keep my legs down because then my blood goes to the floor and then I pass out. Um, I almost didn't make it to the premiere. I was like an hour, like a half hour before I was supposed to arrive to do my step and shoot. I was like in the shower with an IV, like in my hand, like bleeding everywhere, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's like, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, I, there's, I think there was a part of me, 
I mean, I always knew this wasn't true, but I, I also knew that I had a little bit of magical thinking where it's like, once we lock picture on the film, then like that part of my life is done, you know? Um, but it's still my life and I live with it and I learn how to and I think the film is really what helped me find a way to do that. So um, I really can't complain and there have just been so many amazing gifts that have come out of this gift of being able to put this experience into, into a film, so. Thank you for being here. <laughs> So Jonathan, I want to bring this back to your situation. You premiered a few days ago uh, with the Rainey family are here in Park City. Are they still here in Park City? Yeah, they're still here. We're going to have a screening tonight at 4 at uh, Redstone. The Redstone. So if you want to see PJ, she'll be here. <clears throat> um, so what is the, what, what's it been like so far with, uh, with uh, them being in the audience to watching their lives, 10 years of their lives unfold on screen? Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, it's... On one hand, it's it's a challenge. You know, this is the first time they've been on an airplane. The weather here, just getting around the logistics, has been really challenging. There's some homesickness, you know, going on. Um, but after, uh, the, you know, we've only screened once, but after a screening, there's just so much love. Like people just, you know, sort of flocked down, surrounded the family, and and that's what I was hoping for, that the film would reflect that, the, the love that I have for them and, and that the way we crafted it, the viewers and the audience uh, would, would get that. And so, so far it's been really encouraging um, and I'm just really trusting our viewers, our audiences to, um, to receive this gift, that's this family that I've received over all these years, this, this, this friendship, um, and, and um, hopefully just build bridges and connections. And, and, and um, yeah, but it's, it's been a challenge. I think we'll... I think it's hard, you know, um, and uh, I don't know if we were really trained for this. And, and this was like, this story was very incremental. It was like, oh, we're doing it for the community, you know, and, and wasn't thinking it was going to be this, this big thing. And so having to adapt to, wow, like a lot of people are going to get to know the Rainies and, and how is that going to impact them? Um, how is that going to lead to maybe some kind of change, behavior change, different thoughts, different conversations, dialogue? Um, and so, again, uh, you know, being hopeful, you know, you know, taking that, but also uh, wanting to protect them from some of those external forces that might not be so kind and gentle. Um, we have uh, about 10 minutes. We could take a few uh, questions. I think we've got, do we have a microphone uh, around the room? Um, until we get, do we have a microphone? Oh, yeah. Uh, let's uh, grab this gentleman uh, right here. Jennifer. Um, I've seen the film, and uh, I liked it. Um, I was particularly, uh, beside your very intimate, personal approach, which I thought was incredibly brave, um, the international aspects that you covered with the Danish family and with the, the, the poor, uh, the, uh, the young woman in Britain, um, uh, I just, I just think I'm going to say as an observation, and maybe you can comment, that I think that one of the real important aspects of this film is the international kind of implications and sort of the what you're going to be doing, what the film can do uh, to raise awareness of this. And I'll just also lastly say uh, is the film made me very, very angry at the medical profession and. Uh, and so I'm just wondering if you see or have thought about a way that you can use it to, I don't know, help change the world. Because that's, that's what I was thinking when I saw the film. <laughs> the whole world. Um, well, you know, I, I, from the get-go, so I, I um, this film started as a, a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, and we were supposed to raise, I, I'd, I'd hoped, I was scared I wouldn't make it, that we would raise... 50K um, over a 30-day campaign. We met our goal in two days and raised over $200,000. Um, and this is, this is before we even started shooting, and so um, in earnest. And so, so around that... Don't try that at home, aspiring filmmakers. <laughs> no. Um, so something I, something I could, you know, I had a budget. And so, um, and so, so the... But you should try that at home. Talk to me. You actually should try that at home. Um, and so, so the the... But it, I knew very early on two things. One, I felt like I had a once in a, in a generation opportunity um, to, to make a, 
you know, a, a, an ambitious film about this topic and change the narrative. And, and there already had been several generations that had lived through this and, and not seen any change. So I felt that responsibility. And, and as such, I felt like I, I can't just make an American film because then that's not going to have the impact that it needs to have. Moreover, like online, when you're t talking to other patients and people, you know, so much of our support comes from that online connection. You have no idea where someone's from that you're talking to. Um, all you know is that they speak English. And, and so there really is a kind of internationalism in that space. So it was kind of a natural extension of that, that we would sort of tell these international stories. Um, and then lastly, I just didn't want, you know, I think it's really easy, you know, whether you're a foreigner looking at the US or you're an American looking, you know, at, you know, Denmark or, or the UK to sort of say, oh, like, that's just this weird thing that they do over there. And I think having, just seeing that, like, the story is exactly the same in all of these places, I think my, my goal with that was just to sort of um, help make it harder to kind of people to distance themselves because this is a, a problem that is like so close and so easy to fix and it's right at home and I think we always like to, we like we have a tendency a bias to look toward being attracted to the faraway problems because they're sort of you know it's not our fault that they're over there and and it's in this film you just can't do that because it's, it's everywhere so thanks for that comments uh, to the gentleman here First of all, I'd like to compliment you on your presentation as moderator. I don't think we give enough credit to those people, so thank you very much. I have a question for Peter. I, I was impressed with your articulation and your vocabulary selection. Can you give us some personal background on your education? My education? I dropped out in the third grade and uh, <laughs> developed a heroin addiction. Opened my eyes to the world. Um, no, I went to film school. You know, like like not everybody goes to film school, um, and I think in this day and age, some get like formal training in in film, and and some do not. I chose to go. I was at the uh, documentary program at UC Berkeley. Um, go Bears! We got some bears in the house. Oh yeah, talking about. Um, so, and, and so that's Berkeley as a sports team. Berkeley, Berkeley, Cal. The protesters? <laughs> yeah. But John Else, I studied under John Else. And I, a lot of the spirit of, of my voice in, in not just speaking about my, my work, but in, in the film. And I, I prefer to speak through my work. But um, came from John. And, and he's, he's, he's a legend here. I was first at Sundance in 1998 with his film Sing Faster. And uh, it opened my eyes to the ability to sort of make an impact um, with film. So. Oh, that answers your question. Well, you brought you bring honor to your teacher. Thank you. Um, all right, we have time for one more question. I think is this uh, gentleman here? Here we go. Oh, there we go. <laughs> this is also for Peter. Hi, um, I loved your film, and and I was mostly impressed with with its even-handedness. Um, so, given that you are making a film about both the police and the community it serves. Could you talk about um, the challenges of, of achieving the kind of empathy with the community that you did, obviously did, so well? We, I mean, we, we went into this film sort of in the environment of, of a very polarized country. And I, I think portrayals of people on both sides were flattened down into sort of a two-dimensional portrait, both on the police side and on the sort of community side, whether you want to, you know, whether Black Lives Matter is a, a, a symbol for that or, or, or not, I think the, I think the the community is much more diverse than it's led to be in the in, in the press, and so we felt it was really important to go in and really spend the time to create more three dimensional characters. Both our our original intent was to see everything through the police's eyes, but as everything shifted after Ferguson, we, we really were drawn naturally to. Some of, some of the people within the community who were voicing, um, you know, ri raising their voices in protest. Um, and we, we knew that these two didn't see each other in, in ways that would create any meaningful dialogue. And so we hoped with this film that we could create spaces for both sides to see each other in a, in a more three-dimensional way. Whether, whether or not that can lead to dialogue, I, th I think there's still a lot of anger and, and misunderstanding on both sides. But that was our intent, and we were very sort of you know, militant in that approach. I mean, it's the approach I take naturally anyway, just to get into an environment and observe. Um, we all have bias, implicit bias. The editor has implicit bias. The producer, the 
we all bring that to the table when we create something, but we wanted to sort of go in with open eyes. If uh, <clears throat> you've enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to go to the platform SundanceNow.com where we curate many great documentaries and fiction films and TV series. Uh, if you want to hear more interviews with documentary filmmakers, I have a podcast uh, called Pure Nonfiction. You can subscribe for free on iTunes. It's really or good. Go to purenonfiction.net uh, and hear lots more conversations with filmmakers. If you want a button, come up and see me. Um, the, uh, I hope you get a chance to see all these films. Lucy Walker's uh, Buena Vista Social Club documentary. Jonathan Olszewski's Quest. Peter Nix's The Force. And Jennifer Brea's Unrest. Have a great time at Sundance. Thank you very much to these filmmakers.